Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. 20% of our total landfill waste is food waste. We have one landfill and it's going to fill by 2033, 2034. And that's a very big problem for us because we don't have anywhere else to put it. Governor Quinn orders the closing of Rhode Island's famous Narragansett racetrack. Martial law is declared and National Guardsmen take over to prevent the track's opening. Meanwhile, opposing legislators threaten to impeach the governor for using troops. Five years ago, we might have looked at this, this story and said, that is just crazy. It's insane. That could never happen now. Really? Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. A third of all food produced for human consumption in the United States is never eaten. Where all this food ends up and the effect this has on the climate is the subject of tonight's first story. From moldy strawberries to uneaten leftovers, food waste plagues our daily lives. As part of our continuing Green Seeker series, producer Isabella Jabillion takes a look at the fight against food waste here in the Ocean State. At Four Town Farm in Seekonk, it's harvest season. Definitely get in a rhythm. But Ava Agadello knows not all this produce is going to end up at the farm stand. The farm that we're on grows a lot of corn and they have multiple acres of corn and they'll start growing the corn at different times so that it becomes ready at different times. But if we have a super hot summer, sometimes all of the corn will be ready all at the same time and then the farmer doesn't have sufficient customers or grocery stores or whatever that can actually move that much corn that quickly. So they'll just have more corn than they literally know what to do with. And that's not the only problem. Sometimes the food that gets left in the field is a little too big or a little too small. Um, if it's too big, it might not fit in a box. For example, a cauliflower will grow to the size of your torso if you let it. For processing, like if you're selling potatoes to a french fry factory, they need those potatoes to be a certain size and shape and weight to be able to work within the machinery. So after months of tilling land, sowing seeds, and tending to crops, this extra produce will ultimately die on the vine. Food waste is a very big problem in the U.S. and everybody eats. And so it goes well beyond what we're putting into our landfills because 30% of food is wasted or lost before it even gets to the retail or distributor. But they're both talking about economics, right? The problem is a subject of fascination for Don King, a senior lecturer and director of undergraduate studies at Brown University's Environmental Sciences and Studies Department. They also say pollution is a sign of waste. Why are we seeing waste happen on farms? We're very mechanized. And so machines are actually specifically designed, many of them, to only harvest the top two-thirds of a plant. That's because farmers don't want machines getting tangled in the dirt. Plus, farmers leave behind produce that's less attractive, what's known as grade B. Once that becomes grade B, it loses almost all of its value. It's not even like it drops 10%. It loses almost all that value. So farmers are faced in this, in this really bad predicament. They want the food to go to others, but they have to pay people to pick it. They have to pay people to package it. They have to get it on a truck and get it to that donation site. All of this costs the farmer money. And King says the problem goes far beyond the farm. 
there's also waste from manufacturing, restaurants, grocery stores, and at home. One-third of all food produced in the U.S. is never eaten. In the state of Rhode Island, it's 20% of our total landfill waste is food waste. And so I really try to reframe it and say it's wasted food. Because once we change those words around, we realize we're not talking about trash, we're talking about something that is food that we are wasting. When food breaks down when exposed to air, it becomes compost. But when it breaks down in a landfill, something else happens. It rots when it's not when it's not exposed to oxygen, like in a landfill state. And when it rots, it creates- Because it's so piled up. It's so piled up, exactly. You pile it on top of each other, so none of it is exposed to air. And so it does the exact opposite of compost. It turns into methane, right? You're having a festering methane pile that is 25 times more potent than CO2. And that's what we're seeing when we see those pipes that are sticking out of a landfill. Yes. Those are yes. to let out the methane? Yes. So much food is thrown away, King says, because agribusiness and farm subsidies make food less expensive in America than in other countries. I always tell people, think of the last time you went to maybe your local butcher and got like a really nice steak, like a tea, but like a really expensive steak. Whoever wastes that steak, right? Another culprit? Those use-by dates that we all live by. A lot of people don't realize that expiration dates are not set by the U.S. government. There's actually, except for baby formula, baby formula is the only food product that actually has a mandated best-by date. Sometimes it says sell-by, sometimes it says best-by, sometimes it just has a date. When food hits that date, it doesn't necessarily mean it has expired. King says they describe how long manufacturers guarantee the quality of food. And she says they often put dates earlier to encourage more purchasing. There's actually a labeling problem in the United States as well that people throw away things that they think are bad. And it's really not that way. The average store throws out anywhere from five to $10,000 worth of food every day. And that food's anywhere from three days to sometimes weeks before the sell-by date. Josh Dominguez is the founder and CEO of the company Flash Food. It's not just a story of the big bad retailer, it's also consumers. If we go buy a watermelon and there's one on the shelf, as consumers we assume it's the worst one. So the grocer has to overstock the shelves so that we get selection. Dominguez came up with an idea. Take the perfectly edible food that is culled from supermarkets, like a nicked pepper or meat that is within three days of its use-by date, and create an app-based market for it. The result? Flash food, where customers can buy today's deals and pick them up from special purple fridges. Then in terms of the, the volume, we've diverted over 50 million pounds of food that would have likely ended up in landfills. A big rule is no seeds on your board. Just as Flash Foods customers get creative with their baskets of produce and cuts of meat, so does Chef Brandon Lewis. We teach snout-to-tail cookery, so we're using every part of the animal. At Johnson & Wales University, Lewis teaches future restaurateurs about how to avoid wasting food. It's a reaction to the waste that normally happens at restaurants. He says catering requires full platters that are routinely refreshed. Large portion sizes mean that lots of food gets left on the plate. And then there are all those choices. We've all been to restaurants where the menu just goes on and on. You're like, wow, so many items. Well, if they don't have heavy foot traffic, a lot of that food could be going to waste. On this day at Johnson & Wales, Lewis is teaching his students to cook sustainably by improvising with what's available and seasonal. 
each student must draw a slip of paper with mystery ingredients. Their assignment, create a delicious dish in an hour while minimizing food waste. All right, you have 15 minutes. One student is assigned beets. The tops and stalks become pesto and pickles. Another, normally a pastry student, worries over what to do with beef neck. You could be helping your farmer by using off cuts of meat. So for instance, uh, offal, which is like organ meat, um, or, or even beef tongue, those things are delicious. If everyone's always eating from the middle of the animal, then no one's buying the end pieces, you're, you're wasting money in. Liver's back on the menu, yes, is what is. you're saying. And, and so of course, to make liver taste good, you gotta have some pretty good kitchen skills. <laughs> and so that's what you're trying to teach. Yes, absolutely. Is this waste? Emma Albertini, a junior, is given leftover beans and sweet potatoes. Definitely stressful when you don't get to pick what you're going to be um, making. Okay. She purees the beans and sweet potatoes into a stew, adding in parsnips, maple syrup, and juniper berries. Then she crisps the parsnip skins into a garnish. I got another 10 minutes, so I think I got it. To top it off, she makes Native American fry bread from scratch. I'm excited to see how this turns out. I really have no idea. Chef, yep. I have a dish for you. Yeah, the soup's seasoned with uh, just maple syrup and juniper berries. Yeah, well, the salt's good. It's crispy and it's pillowy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really good fry bread for the first time. Thank you. For Chef Lewis, his class is a microcosm of a larger change happening in restaurants across the country. Back in like the 90s, a chef wanted zucchini blossoms in February, so they would ship them in from Israel in a clamshell for $100 a pop. That's a little, you know, a little extreme, a little ridiculous. This idea that a chef was this sort of top-down leader of the food system, someone who demanded ingredients brought to them, that, that age is gone. Instead, fine dining has embraced farm to table. It's all part of an effort to decrease the emissions of what we eat and avoid the destructive impact of filling our landfills with food. Rhode Island is a state more than any other state. We have one landfill and it's gonna fill by 2033, 2034. And that's a very big problem for us because we don't have anywhere else to put it. One solution right, is to get that 20% of the scra food scraps out of the landfill. One way to do that start municipal composting programs. At present, those are few and far between. At least 90% of total food scraps in the United States go straight to landfills. Another way, turn food into fuel. This plant in Freetown, Massachusetts, takes everything from apples to the coffee and K-cups from over 200 grocery stores across New England. The tons of food are decomposed without air, producing methane gas. But rather than polluting, it's captured to generate electricity. It's an emerging industry in the U.S., but is more common throughout Europe and in China. Though technology for dealing with wasted food is expanding, back at Four Town Farm, Ava Agadello employs an old-world solution to this problem. The first mention of gleaning is actually in the Old Testament in the Book of Ruth. Um, so it goes back, you know, thousands of years. It's not new tech. It sure is not. No, people are like, how did you come up with this idea? And I'm like, oh, I really did not. <laughs> Gleaning is the act of harvesting the extra produce left in the fields. Through her program, Hope's Harvest, Agadello and her team mobilize volunteers to pick these leftovers. 
How much have you guys harvested so far and how much are you planning on harvesting? So we're already past uh, probably about 400 pounds of corn and we will probably get over a thousand pounds. The fruits of their labor are donated to food banks and hunger relief organizations. And across the country, there are over 250 gleaning and food recovery groups doing this work. At Hope's Harvest, Agadello has seen her project take root. We have grown so much in the last few years since we started in 2018. Um, that first year, we harvested 36,000 pounds of fruits and vegetables. And last year, it was up to 250,000 pounds. What motivates you to work on this issue? When I was a kid, um, so my mom was a single parent and she worked full time. And there were a lot of times where she was skipping meals so that I had enough uh, money on my lunch card to eat. And you don't forget that and you don't forget what that feels like. It's not okay for people to be having that experience if there's enough food to go around. No one should have to feel that way. People, until they come out and actually see in the field and see what it looks like, don't realize how much abundance there actually is and how prolific the earth really is in, um, in giving us this abundance. Up next, 85 years ago this month, a political fight broke out between the governor of Rhode Island and the owner of the Narragansett Racetrack. It became known as the Racetrack War, but the bitterness reached well beyond the track, changing the political landscape to this very day. Richard Ring of the Rhode Island Historical Society has the story. Governor Quinn orders the closing of Rhode Island's famous Narragansett racetrack and officially charges that it is a harbor for acts of violence. Martial law is declared and National Guardsmen take over to prevent the track's opening. Meanwhile, opposing legislators threaten to impeach the governor for using troops. So the racetrack war happens in 1937, but the track itself, the Narragansett racetrack, had been open since 1934. And the reason that the track had opened in 1934 was really the depression. States are looking for revenue. And so it was a man named Walter O'Hara, who was from Fall River. He had owned textile mills there. He saw an opportunity. And once Governor Theodore Francis Green makes it legal to basically have paramutual betting in Rhode Island, there's a referendum, the people vote for it, and within days, the Narragansett Racing Association is chartered, and within another few days, construction starts on the track. And so it only takes Walter O'Hara from June to August 1934, and $1.2 million to build an entire racetrack, and the races start. That racing season lasts 59 days, and $23 million is bet in that season. The state takes $800,000 of that money and it becomes about 10% of the state's revenue. One of the reasons that the racetrack war happens is that it's a chip, if you will, in the game, the political game that was going on at the time between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Republicans had basically controlled the government since the Civil War. All of that changes January 1, 1935, 
after Theodore Francis Green and a group of other Democratic bosses put aside their differences and essentially clean house. All the Supreme Court justices are let go and their own people are put into place and the power shifts completely from the Republicans to the Democrats in a matter of a week. And then that, you would think, would settle the battle. Unfortunately, the Democrats then start infighting. The racetrack is owned by Walter O'Hara. He allies himself with Thomas P. McCoy, who is the mayor of Pawtucket at the time. But McCoy has his own political machine. And there are maybe three other Democratic political machines at odds with each other in the state. So the governor at the time is Robert E. Quinn, who became governor when Theodore Francis Green gets elected to the Senate. And so Quinn is allied with the Providence Journal. He and Savellan Brown, the editor of the journal, are allies. And McCoy and Ahara start trying to push against Quinn and Brown the power structure that is in the government. And the friction starts. Part of the problem is that O'Hara, as the head of the track, doesn't want to pay as, ma as many state taxes as Quinn wants. So there's a revenue issue. Uh, and then there's always all an influence issue. O'Hara owns the Providence Star Tribune, and he runs a particular issue with a massive headline that says, Governor Quinn will land in Butler's, O'Hara says. But when you folded the paper to deliver it, it just read, Governor Quinn in Butler's. And that was a great example of the kind of chicanery that O'Hara would pull to sort of suggest that Quinn was nuts. Because at this point, everybody actually thinks O'Hara is kind of crazy. Of course, he hears that and he responds in kind. And so it's that kind of rhetorical fight that really just escalates everything. O'Hara doesn't let Quinn's investigators come and look at the books. Quinn sends journal reporters to the track to kind of run surveillance on O'Hara. And one journal reporter gets assaulted and beaten. There's the sense from Quinn that the track attracts elements, criminal elements. Quinn had to remove O'Hara. He was a loose cannon. He was too powerful and too vocal. So he decides that the track is now a site of insurrection. It's a site that needs to be handled physically. He declares martial law, sends 300 troops with machine guns and the state police, and closes the track before the fall races. And it's closed for about a month. It gets national news. I mean, everybody is basically saying, what in the world is happening in Rhode Island? It's a national embarrassment. People are claiming that we have a little dictator overstepping his powers and basically skipping over due process. It becomes this really contentious time. So it ends up with O'Hara being removed and one of the other racing association officials, James Dooley, who is a judge, becomes the president of the racing association from 1938 until 1960. So it basically gets into much saner hands. The racetrack war wasn't a win for anyone. It was awful sort of, uh, sort of eruption and failure 
of Rhode Island politics. And it really exposed a lot of the corruption in the system. I think that in, in some ways, studying these events, especially with recent knowledge, gives us a better sense what we're dealing with today. Five years ago, we might have looked at this, this story and said, that is just crazy. It's insane. That could never happen now. Really? Now, a second look at the Providence Athenaeum. It was established nearly 190 years ago on Benefit Street. Tonight, in our continuing series, Window on Rhode Island, Stephanie Avoyan, Head of Research and Library Services, takes us on a tour and shares some of its most intriguing finds. Hi, I'm Stephanie Ovoyan. I'm the head of research and library services here at the Providence Athenaeum. We are kind of a relic here in Providence. We're a 19th century library that's operating in the 21st century. The building has so much charm and so many fun little aspects to it that any time you turn a corner, you're bound to notice something new. Here we are at the Athenaeum's card catalog. This was introduced to the library in the 1880s, and a librarian named Grace Leonard was hired in 1895, specifically to introduce the Dewey Decimal System to the library. So at the time of her hire, we had 56,000 items in the collection, and it took Grace 13 years to finish writing out all of the cards. If we open up one of these drawers, you can still see Grace's handwritten cards inside. So here we have one of the gems of the Athenaeum's art collection. This is The Hours by Newport-based artist Edward Malbone. It was stolen in 1881 by one Providence gentleman and then another man who was thought to have been part of Jesse James's gang. But a detective was on the case, uh, produced a reward poster, and the works came back to the library. It's lived in this case here ever since. So welcome to the Philbrook Rare Book Room. Out on display on the cabinet today, we have The Description of Egypt. This set of books was commissioned by Napoleon when he was bringing his troops to Egypt. He also brought scholars, scientists, and artists to record everything that they were seeing in Egypt. And then they published their findings in this set of books. It was a real hot ticket item at the time, and the books were responsible for paving the way for the birth of modern Egyptology and kicking off the wave of Egyptomania that swept through North America and Europe at the time. Here we have the volumes of text in these folio-sized volumes. Next, we've got the volumes of plates, which were published in these elephant folio-sized volumes. And then lastly, we have three of these double elephant folio-sized volumes, which contain the largest plates and maps. And these are the largest books in the Athenaeum's collection. And then just for fun, I've pulled out also the library's smallest book. This measures just about an inch by three quarters of an inch and it's an edition of Robert Burns's Kilmarnock, uh, poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect. And this is the art room where we honor the legacy of Edgar Allan Poe. We'll set the scene in the year 1848. The poet Sarah Helen Whitman was a local poet, and by 1848 she was considered one of the best poets in America. And also in the year 1848, the poet Edgar Allan Poe was the talk of literary society. The two poets began a correspondence, and Poe would come to visit Whitman here in Providence. The two would come to the Athenaeum. 
And at one point during their time at the Athenaeum, Whitman asked Poe if he knew who wrote a poem called Ulla Loom, which had been anonymously published in a periodical called the American Whig Review. Poe took our copy of that book off the shelf, opened up to the poem, and signed his name in pencil at the bottom of the page because he had written it, he had just submitted it anonymously. We have that book in our collection still today here, um, and you can see his signature at the bottom of the page right there. That must have been kind of a smooth move between poets, and Whitman agreed to marry Poe on the condition that he remained sober, because he had a known drinking problem. At one point during one of their visits at the Athenaeum on December 23rd, two days before their Christmas Day wedding, someone came in with a note for Whitman, claiming to have seen Poe out drinking that morning and the night before. She ran back to her home, where she fainted on the couch. Poe begged her to still marry him, and she said while she did still love him, she could no longer marry him. Poe left Providence, uh, the two never saw each other again, and then he was dead within a year. So it's a bit of a tragic love story, but Sarah Helen Whitman lived for almost 30 more years after Poe's death, and she was a firm defender of his reputation. Here we are in an alcove at the Athenaeum. And this is a fun little secret part of the library that we like to tell people about. Here in the desk, you can see that over the years, lots of visitors have come to the library and left little notes for one another inside the desk drawers. You can find them throughout the library. This drawer has a ton. This one probably has about 50 notes inside. Um, other desks have a similar amount, some have fewer. Um, they're just tucked in everywhere. So this one's pretty lovely, this illustration in there. Um, we've got all sorts of notes, little poems, longer letters, so everyone is part of the Athenaeum's history. Um, it doesn't have to be from 1850 or 1838 when we were established, but even just last year or this year, everyone makes a little mark on the library. Finally, in this season of Halloween, a sneak peek to next week's story on Rhode Island author H.P. Lovecraft, who wrote of dark, otherworldly creatures and had an even darker personal side. Those possessed with reading Lovecraft also have to come to grips with something more sinister than his imaginings. The author had a chilling monster inside, bigotry. It is no secret in his writings. This artistic gift to write these incredible stories, his literary work is often infused with his own paranoias and xenophobia and racism. Where does that stem from in him, do you think? What so, was it about his life? To some extent, that's, that's a, a product of his time. I mean, this is a time in America where racism was institutionalized at the Supreme Court level. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you and good night.